Thanks, Helen. So you're all right then? Yeah? And even if you're not all right, this is a good place to be, isn't it? I was thinking back over the years, and I was just thinking, because obviously this is a message that, that Jesus is talking about salvation, and just thinking about my, the first few times I went to services um, when I first became a Christian. And I was very, very broken, and I had a lot of issues. And I just, I just remember how much, I don't know, power there seemed to be. And, um, you know, we look at times in revival where the church is, like, really going for it, and, you know, God is so obviously manifest. But I also think that, that sometimes just if we're willing to believe that God is on the move and we combine our desperation with a belief that God is bigger than any other factor, God will move in our lives. So don't be afraid to have issues tonight and don't be afraid to, to kindle and align with fresh faith that God really is victorious and he can do something even tonight. Something that came to me earlier was, again, that verse from Lamentations where it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never changes and his mercies are new every morning. And I just felt that there was something new that was available this evening, that everyone that came into the church, there was something new that was on offer, a new blessing, a new, a new experience of his healing, of his touch, of his mercy, of his power. So again, don't switch off this evening. Don't think it's same old, same old. Don't bury. And I realise, you know, I, you know, I want integrity in saying it. I've, I've had times where I've kind of thought, you know what, I'm just going to sort of bury that because I don't have faith anything's going to happen tonight. And you know what, I'd just rather not get it all out there and then nothing happen and be disappointed and gather it all back in again. But, but I think I want to say this evening that God is here and we'll have ministry at the end of the service. But even while I'm speaking, just be open to the fact that God sees, that he cares, and that he really is victorious, and that he could do something tonight that you're not expecting. He could do something that you don't even have faith for, but he's a big God, and he loves you, and he wants you free, he wants you to know his joy, he wants to deliver you from the things that hold you back. So, you know, that was all from me saying, are you all right, and then thinking, what if someone's not all right? Um, so I'm glad that you're all right, but even if you're not, you, you are all right, really, because God's here. And he wants to, to meet with you. Um, uh, a lot of people here went to the New Wine Leaders Conference recently uh, in Harrogate. And uh, I, was on a, I got a train back from Leeds. And there was a student um, who obviously was at Leeds University. And I found this out because the guy that was sat opposite him started talking to him on the train. And um, it was an older guy and a younger guy. And uh, the older guy started... Uh, he took it upon himself to sort of start offering wise counsel to the younger guy. And I couldn't see his face, but I thought he was, you know, very gracious. This younger guy just sort of took all this kind of counsel. And this older guy was telling him how fortunate he was that his parents had paid for him to go to university. And, uh, you know, he had to use his time well and not drink too much and, you know, work really hard. And uh, he said at least three times to this younger guy, he said, and remember, knowledge sets you free. Knowledge sets you free. And obviously I was delighted because I knew right there and then I had a sermon illustration. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm so glad this really happened. I didn't have to make it up. So, um, so knowledge sets you free. Knowledge sets you free. And, so, uh, and he was saying to this guy, you know, you never know if a flight might not happen or a train is delayed. Always have a book on you so you can read and get more knowledge. And... Uh, and in a sense, the older man uh, it took it upon himself to be a teacher, a teacher to this younger guy. And our reading tonight, here you go, here's the, here's the whole point of that illustration. Our reading that Helen just read to us is two teachers. There's the older teacher, Nicodemus, Jesus refers to him as a teacher of Israel. 
And then there's the Galilean, the, 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 the younger teacher, Jesus. But in this story, it's actually the younger who schools the older in the basics of salvation. It's the younger who tells the older, not that knowledge will set us free, but he tells him about the true knowledge, the true knowledge that is the knowledge of salvation through Christ alone that really does set people free. So let's think about that true knowledge this evening. So again, we've got Nicodemus. He's a prominent Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's like a big cheese uh, in, in, in the, the Jewish world. Uh, he's, he's a prominent uh, teacher. And he's coming to Jesus, this humble Galilean teacher. And he's recognizing that Jesus has something to say, something worth hearing. So in the second verse, he says, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. So again, you know, Nicodemus is humbling himself. You know, he's coming to Jesus and he's recognized there's something about you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inquiring about it. I'm interested. And so he comes to Jesus. And Jesus essentially schools him uh, in the basics of salvation. And he uses three, well, predominantly three illustrations that we'll look at now. So he uses three illustrations, birth, wind, and a serpent on a pole. Just your obvious everyday uh, kind of, yeah, uh, illustrations. Birth, wind, and a serpent on a pole. So first, birth. Very truly, this is verse three. If, you, if you've got it open, you want to have a look. So I'm not making it up. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again, which can also be translated born from above. But either way, it's something that happens that's from heaven, that's God-initiated. And a couple of verses later, in verse 5, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you. I mean, he really means this, doesn't he? Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. What on earth is he on about? Well, all humans experience a natural birth, don't they? That's what he's talking about with, with water. It's not actually, I don't think, got anything to do with baptism, although water baptism's really important, great. But what he's talking about is natural birth. And he's saying that they need to experience spiritual birth as well as natural birth. When we're born into this world, we're, we are children of Adam. And as such, we share in Adam's fallen state. So we need a second birth, a spiritual birth, so that we can become children of God and share in his nature. So that's what God wants to happen. And the only way this can happen is through Jesus. John writes in the first chapter of John's gospel, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, so just the physical water birth, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And Nicodemus is confused about this, so Jesus shares the second illustration. So we had birth, now we've got wind. So he's talking uh, to Nicodemus, trying to explain the basics of salvation. He's moving on now. So now we're on wind. And Jesus uses a play on words. So ruach, which is Hebrew for spirit, also means breath or wind. And similarly, pneuma, uh, the Greek word, likewise means both spirit and wind. So Jesus is talking about spiritual birth, but also talking about wind and how one can demonstrate uh, the mystery, as it were, and the power uh, of what he's talking about. So Jesus is, you know, fair, he's, you know, fair play. 
you know, Nicodemus is finding it confusing. And so Jesus is sort of saying, isn't it sort of admitting it is confusing? So he's saying this new birth is absolutely necessary, but yeah, granted, it's also a mystery. And everyone born of the Spirit is like the wind. You can't fully explain or predict the wind, and you can't fully explain or predict either the Spirit or the born-again Christian either. However, like the wind, you can feel and recognize the impact of God's Spirit and the impact of God's Spirit in a transformed life, in the life of someone who has been born again. Nicodemus still doesn't really understand. Uh, And so Jesus goes on to share his third illustration, which is this funny illustration of a serpent on a pole. I took mercy on Helen and didn't ask her to read this as well. Um, But a few verses from Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, this is what Jesus is referring to. And uh, it's an account of the Israelites uh, in the Old Testament, a story of sin, but of grace and of faith. So this is Numbers 21, 4 to 9. They, God's people, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And so we see in this passage how God's people rebel, God judges the people for their sin, sends serpents who bite the people, they die, but then Moses intercedes to the people and instructs God, God instructs Moses to make a snake, put it on a pole, and anyone looks to it by faith will live. And so why does Jesus mention this? Well, just as a serpent was lifted up on the pole, so Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross. He's saying it's, this is like, it's, it's a prophetic type of what I'm going to do. And he's going to be lifted up to save people from sin and death. So just as God's people in Numbers 21 had sinned and the consequence was physical death, All of us, all people have sinned, and the consequence is not only physical death, but spiritual death, separation from the God who made us to know him forever. And so Jesus is dealing with that when he dies on the cross. Now, so much is going on then when Jesus is lifted up like the serpent. So much goes on on the cross, some of which we've sung about already. And I've found it helpful. There's a a few, if you've ever done uh, the Alpha course, but particularly um, in the earlier forms of, of our, I mean, I really like the, the Alpha film series. They're brilliant. They're better. Um, but it's not quite as clear on the cross episode. These four points that they used to make uh, about what the cross achieves. And, and I've got these, you know, from Nicky Gumbel, and I've, I've not seen anything better, so I'm going to share it again. Um, I've shared this so many times, but I've, until I get something better, I'm going to keep saying it. And they all begin with four Ps. So there's the partition of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the pollution of sin. Feel free to add up another thing, as long as it begins with P. As long as you think, as long as you can, feel free to find other things that the cross achieves. So the partition of sin, and you've kind of got the image of the family to help you understand this. So um, when Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, they rebel against him. 
it's kind of a big elephant in the room because they've been experiencing this amazing communion with him. They've been walking with him in the cool of the day and they basically run and hide and it's this big elephant in the room and God's like, where have you, where have you gone? And they know that they've messed up royally and it's a bit like, I suppose, in our relationships, you know, if you've ever, I'm sure you never have, you've never ever had a horrible argument with anyone in your whole life but just imagine, just imagine You've had an argument with a spouse or a sibling or a child or a neighbor. And until one of you, you know, kind of humbles themselves and repents and says, look, I've been an idiot. I'm really sorry. There's this elephant in the room, isn't there? So you can just cut the tension with a knife. And it's just this, this partition until one of you says sorry. And then the other one graciously also says sorry, even though they've not done anything wrong. Uh, and then you, you and you both and you both and you both and you both reconcile, and it's wonderful, isn't it? Well, Jesus deals with this partition of sin on the cross. We have rebelled, and you know, one of the ways in which we've rebelled is when we've frankly just not really been interested in God. You know, for, until I became a Christian at the age of twenty, I just simply wasn't interested, and I have to acknowledge that was sinful of me. I cared enough about other things to find out about them. I was interested in other things. I read about other things. But the fact that there might actually be a God in heaven who made me for himself and that he's the only one who could tell me what to do in my life, and I wasn't interested. Looking back, I've got to be honest, that was sinful. Maybe that's you. I'm not having a go. But maybe you can relate. Maybe you've just never been that interested and you've got a friend who's brought you along tonight. So get with the program, like I did when I was 20 years old and realised that nothing else that you've been focusing on Uh, can compare with this message, with what Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus. There's the partition, but also then the penalty of sin. And again, Nicky Gumbel shares an illustration, which I've used a million times. I just think it's really good, and you can share with me a different one that's better, and I'll start using yours, and I'll have to credit you with it. But but Nicky Gumbel uses this illustration, where he says, imagine there are these two friends that, uh, that go to law school, they're studying law. And uh, years later, one of them is, is, is a judge. He's, you know, he's done all his medical training and he's in court. And uh, he's alarmed when his friend comes in. And actually, maybe he hadn't noticed the name straight away when he saw what, what was on the bill for that day. But the friend comes in. It's actually his friend he was at law school with who's committed a crime. He thinks, how has this happened? You know, we studied law together and my friend's now embraced a life of crime. This is awful. But he has a, a bit of a quandary because he is a judge and he has to uphold justice doesn't he and we love justice don't we we really like the idea of a just world and dealing with injustice and go to any university in the country and there's loads of kind of you know well-intentioned passionate students banging on about the need for justice and so we love the idea of justice unless it's justice for ourselves so when we are naughty and silly and make mistakes we're not a massive fan of the idea of justice for us but we're very quick to point out where uh, things need to be redressed in the lives of others or you know when people in the media have done something wrong we're like that's awful um you know and there's that old thing isn't it when you when you when you point on finger you've got three pointing back at you so we need to be a bit uh, self-aware don't we when we when we start wagging the finger at others so we like the idea of justice in theory and so this just judge is thinking well i have to uphold justice but i love this is my friend i love him i don't know what's gone wrong but i lo- this is my friend whom i love and so he thinks, what am I going to do? And so he thinks, okay, he's committed this crime. There has to be a punishment. The punishment is a £50,000 fine. What does he do then? Well, he comes down from his seat, from his judgment seat, and he writes a cheque for £50,000, and he gives it to the friend. He has upheld justice with the verdict, but then he's paid the price 
himself. And that, in a, in a sense, is an illustration of what God in his mercy has done for us. We sang about it before the throne of God above. He is the just judge. He is a holy God. And we have sinned against him. And there is a penalty. And, and if there was a God who was just let everything slip, then we would just, it would just be anarchy, wouldn't it? It would be anarchy in this country if there were no laws that govern the land. Imagine if the God of the universe just like didn't uphold sensible forms of justice. There'd just be anarchy. You know, that's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing good about that. And so he pays the price himself. Jesus dies on the cross. He dies our death and pays the penalty for our sin. Thirdly then, there's, there's the power of sin. And if you like, there's the image then, you have the image of the family, the law court, the image of the marketplace. In the first century when people were in, sold into slavery, you, you'd have to ransom them out of slavery. And that's exactly what Jesus does when he dies for us on the cross. He ransoms us from bondage to sin. I like the illustration from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And uh, with the white witch and Edmund sells out his family from Turkish delight, which is bewildering, isn't it? It's, just, it's like, you know, at least, I don't know, a Terry's chocolate orange or something. But it's a Turkish delight. It's just, you know, you know, says it all. So, but you, when you watch the film and, um, you know, don't throw stones at me if you're a purist and you, you know, I, I have, I'm sure I read the books. I'm sure I have. Maybe I have. I don't know. Maybe I did. Anyway, in, in the film, you've got Edmund eating this Turkish delight. It's got all that sort of sugary powder on it. And he's slobbering over it. And the white witch is just watching. And it's literally like he's taking into himself the sinful decision. And it's like the white witch who, holds the, who is the personification of darkness has now got an inroad into Edmund's heart through the darkness that he is aligned with through rebellion against God. And when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they're tempted by Satan and they turn from God, we've got the proof of sin because they're ashamed. They're hiding behind the fig leaves. Something has changed. And it's literally the case that human beings, it's not just Adam and Eve, but all of us. And I know you might think, you know, speak for yourself, mate. But but biblically speaking, you know, don't take it from me, take it from Jesus. That that we are born into this sinful nature. We are children of Adam and we are constituted sinners. Literally, our our DNA, our genetics are sinful. We have a propensity to sin. We are in bondage to sin. We're also brilliant, by the way, because when God made us, he made us good. And he made all of creation, and then he made us, and we were the jewel of creation, humanity. And he said, wow, it's very good. So there is original goodness before original sin. But the truth is that we are in bondage to the power of sin. And again, an illustration I've shared a lot of times. I'll stop using it if I can think of anything better. Uh, but it came to me why. Oh, this is me. This is Mark Castleton illustration. Not that it's very good. You'll be like, well, it's not very good. Um, so but just imagine you've got a cup of coffee and um, you put milk into it. It's now a completely different drink, isn't it? If someone comes around and you say, oh, do you want coffee? And you say, oh, do you want milk? And they say no. And two minutes later, you forget and you absentmindedly put milk in it. You can't sort of say, like, oh, it's sort of the same, isn't it? They'll be like, oh, no. And you'll have to make a new drink, won't you? The truth is it's just different. And you can't extract the milk once you've placed it in. It's a bit like that with sin. That we, we are almost like a different drink. And you can't sort of snatch it out. You can't get rid of it. We just are now this different colored drink. There's just no way back. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he makes it possible, if you like, to extract the milk so that we are the drink that we were always made to be, that we were made very good and sin has corrupted us and polluted us and we just can't go back to what we did before and we need Jesus to set us free from the power of sin. And then finally, relatedly then, the pollution of 
sin, an image from the temple where, where the hands were laid on the scapegoat, where you imparted that sin, but also not only the guilt, but also the shame attached to sin, where Adam and Eve hid and behind the fig leaf, this, this, this shame that goes with guilt. Scripture says, if we say we have no sin, truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, it says, not only does God forgive us, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, which is wonderful, isn't it? So God wants to forgive us, but also to cleanse us. So that's just a snapshot of, 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 of what the cross achieves. And I remember when I was 20 and I became a Christian and, and I'd, um, I'd been quite, well, I'd been very wayward and, uh, and I became very ill as a consequence of my waywardness. And um, I had to take a year out from university. And I remember my, my mum had left out this, um, this news, like a Christian newspaper. And it was kind of sort of, well, it was providential really, but it, she hadn't told me to read it. I just read it. It was just there. It's just like when you procrastinate and you mess around with whatever's around you. I just picked up this Christian newspaper, which in theory I had no interest in, but it was just there. And I remember there was a testimony of this woman who'd become a Christian. She shared about the meaning of the cross, some of what I've shared. And it ended with a prayer where you could, in a sense, avail yourself of the benefits of what happened on the cross. And I remember, I remember reading it and, and something in my heart said, this is true. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll respond. And I prayed a prayer that we're going to pray in just a moment. But just moving on then. So the serpent in Moses' day brought physical life to dying Jews when they looked to it. But Jesus, more than that, gives eternal life to any. And like I said, the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in need of this. We're not like the Israelites where like certain of them have got stung and they needed to look at this snake on a pole. All of us need to look in faith to Jesus lifted high on the cross. So I've just given the answer away. But how do we respond? How do we benefit then from what Jesus has done on the cross? As he's been explaining to Nicodemus, we need to be born again. This is a work of God's spirit. I mean, it's made possible because Jesus dies on the cross. So what do we do? How do we appropriate it? Well, again, the passage gives us the answer. Jesus goes on to share. And uh, William Barclay, a commentator, says of John 3.16, Herein for every simple heart is the very essence of the gospel. And you might have seen John 3.16 on footballers' t-shirts when they score and celebrate. They pull their shirt up, John 3.16, or on banners in sports stadiums. Anyone who's been a Christian for more than 10 minutes knows what it says. But maybe you, you've, you, you, you don't even know, what is, what is John 3.16? Well, John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world, we see his motive, that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so the answer is just believing in Jesus. It's simply saying, Jesus, I believe what you said. You know, he hasn't done it yet. He's telling Nicodemus what he's going to do when he goes to the cross. But it's just, I believe that he did this. I believe he did it for me. And it's receiving the gift of faith. Because again, before you freak out, you don't become a Christian because you're either very clever or very stupid. It's not something that you either have to like really work out or be so dumb that, that you just accept it blindly. It's not about mental assent to kind of lots of systems of doctrine and theology. Basically, God inspires our hearts so that when we hear the good news of salvation through Jesus, something in us says, this is true. But even then, we have the possibility to push back and resist. We just simply have to agree with how the Holy Spirit, again, this, the impact of the wind upon the person, that you have the choice to say yes or no. 
He inspires and we, 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 we choose to believe and we come to believe by grace through faith, which is what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. So again, maybe you're hearing this tonight. Maybe a friend brought you or you came in. And maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and saying, this is what I need to know. And the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to, to believe in Jesus. You need to look to him in by faith. And you need to receive him that you would know life, that you would be set free from sin and the power of death. And the final verse of that reading, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. It's his motive that we would know salvation. And John 3.16 talks about eternal life, that those who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, what, what, what is eternal life? It's not just quantity, but quality. It's God's life. Even as Jesus is lifted up, we're lifted up into God's life and it goes on forever. And Jesus actually said in John 17 verse 3, he said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So Jesus basically says eternal life is a relationship with him forever. A life-giving relationship for which we were made that no other relationship on earth can replicate, that no career or other passion can come close to. As Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. There is nothing else that can fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. So we need to come home. We need to come to the one who made us for himself, that we would know life. Eternal life is knowing God. So, how do we respond? Have you placed your faith uh, in Jesus yet? If you haven't, you need to do that tonight. But also, perhaps, you have placed your faith in Jesus, and you think, it's great, I am a Christian. But what then? Well, remember how I started with the illustration of the train and the two people on the train. This, this guy was a bit presumptive, really. Uh, but, but you've got to respect the fact that he had he really believed that he had something to give to this younger guy. It was a bit presumptive in the way that he shared it, but, you know, knowledge sets you free, knowledge sets you free, knowledge sets you free. Do we have that same boldness? Are we willing to think that we don't need to be schooled again in the basics of salvation, but we can each in our own way become the teacher? We can become like the older guy that goes to the younger student on the train, believing that they have a message to share, not about the accruing of worldly knowledge and worldly wisdom, but the message of salvation, what Jesus has shared in this passage, are we prepared next time we're on a train or on a bus or maybe even in our own front room with family members that don't yet know Jesus? Can we share about the true knowledge that does set people free? Experiential knowledge of God that goes on forever, eternal life with him. Are we willing to share the gospel? Are we willing to go out with that message? The world desperately needs to hear it. There's nothing else that will do and there's the, there is nothing else that can provide hope for this world. As we look at wars, as we look at, at political turmoil, as we look at you know, financial problems or whatever's happening with the financial markets or whatever's happening with ill health that we have or family members' health, where can we place our trust? What can we put our hope in? Nothing but Jesus will suffice. Nothing but the gospel of salvation can set us free and others free. Nothing else can provide hope. Have we made that our own? But also, will we share that? I was reminded before the service, of, of, of and, and again, the context is very different, but when, when, when God says, 
and Isaiah is in hearing when the Trinity are talking and, and God says to himself, you know, whom shall we send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Are we willing to be sent? Are we willing to go to people who don't yet know Jesus and share the message of salvation with them? Would you stand? Let's stand and, and respond together. And yeah, if the band want to come up, that'd be great. But let's just begin by honouring that wind of God's spirit. Father, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. And Father, we ask you now through Jesus that you'd pour out your spirit upon us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you would come, that you would minister to your people and even to those perhaps who don't yet know you who are here. Lord, would you just move among us now? Minister your grace, your conviction, your revelation, your power, your healing, your deliverance. Holy Spirit, come and do all that would bless you, all that would bring glory to Jesus. Let's just wait and allow God to do what he wants to do. When we invite the Spirit to come, he comes. And the Holy Spirit loves to confirm what the Bible says in our lives. The Holy Spirit loves to take from the words of Jesus, the words of Scripture, and confirm it to our hearts and our experience. So just become aware that, that God is here by faith. Just recognize his presence with all of us, but for you individually. Perhaps you can even say, Holy Spirit, what, what are you doing in my life? What are you saying to me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you really would be very present, that you would manifest your presence in such a way that each one knows that you are touching them. Perhaps this is new to you. I encourage you to close your eyes. Perhaps it just helps to concentrate. And don't be surprised if your, your imagination is awakened. Maybe pictures, images come into your thoughts. Or perhaps something from the Bible that you've read comes into your mind. Just be aware of those little nudges. but also perhaps just be aware of his, the feeling of God's presence. Sometimes when he touches us, he's the God of the universe. Our, phys- our bodies can, can feel his presence. Don't be alarmed if you feel heat, if there's a tingling sensation. Don't feel you have to stifle any emotion. Perhaps there's joy, perhaps tears. What is God doing in your heart? Holy Spirit, would you just come again? Just move in power. Fill this place, Lord, with your presence. Lord, let your river flow through our hearts, through this place. We honor you, Lord.
to just lean in, receive from him. God is touching people. God is here. certain people to come to the front bit in a moment but just even where you're stood God is touching you God is blessing you Sometimes we have an awareness of what God is doing. Sometimes we don't, but just, if it's subtle, don't miss it. Sometimes you can just feel lighter. Just a sense that there's, there's a lightness, there's a presence. God just snatches away things. The, the darkness is just removed. Heaviness is lifted off. Even God ministers healing. Perhaps there's a, a, an area of your heart or even your body that, that you're aware of and a need of God's healing. And he's touching that place. He's touching you with his healing love, with his power, strengthening you. to just say yes try not to think about other things or what it might look like or what's happening tomorrow so often we shrink back to the very point where we're becoming aware of what God is doing just allow yourself to give in give in to the arms of infinite love to the God of all mercy if that results in tears if that results in laughter it results in just knowing that he's touching you even if you can't quite explain it. While we continue to just wait on him, I'm going to pray a prayer, a prayer for, for giving our lives to Jesus, benefiting from what he did on the cross we looked at. And if you've never prayed a prayer like this before, perhaps you'd like to pray it along with me and, and, and amen to it you can either repeat it after me or just listen and just say I agree with that and say amen so I'm going to pray that but let's just all continue to engage Father thank you for your great love and Lord Jesus I'm sorry for every evil thing that I've said and thought and done I'm sorry for the things I've not done that were important to you I recognize that I've been a slave to sin, that I've been separated from you. And Jesus, I just, I agree with you this evening. By faith, I believe that you died for me and that you died so that I could be, I could be born again. I could become part of God's family. 
I can be set free from the guilt and the shame and know freedom from sin's power. So Lord, I receive your forgiveness this evening. Help me to forgive others that have sinned against me. Help me to be a person, an agent of forgiveness. And Lord Jesus, I invite you to come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I want to know eternal life that begins now, a relationship with you that goes beyond the grave. Jesus, I confess you this evening as my Lord and Saviour. I give my life to you. I surrender to you, the God of all mercy and love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never prayed a prayer like that before, I'd like to invite you to come. There's prayer ministry team at the front. And, and, and what we do is we have prayer ministry and it'd just be lovely for people to, to be able to pray with you. That you say, hey, I did this, what now? And they can just pray for you to get to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'd have the best start. And I know that can seem a bit scary or weird, but if that's you, just come. People would love to pray for you. So come, just come now and allow people to, if you've done that this evening for the first time, come. And I'd also like to pray for for that, that second group that I talked about. That we recognize like the man on the train that, that we have good news to share, but perhaps we've been reticent to share it. And God is, wanting to, God is asking us, who will go for us? Your next door neighbor that at the moment is destined for eternal separation from God. Your family member that you don't like talking to about Jesus because it always seems to result in an argument and it's awkward. But you've not actually necessarily taken the time to ask God for the wisdom to know how to approach that in a way that doesn't lead to an argument. But you recognize tonight that you need, you need to go again. But maybe, again, with that wisdom to do it. There's people at work that you want to share the good news of God with. The care home that you visit, you need to tell these people about Jesus. Some people we know might not have long left in this world, and it's, it's critical. The time, is, the time is now. If you feel a stirring in your heart that you know you need to start telling people about Jesus, but you want grace to do it, and you're thinking, actually, I'm filled with trepidation now because I feel I really ought to be sharing the gospel with Peter, but I'm nervous about it, but I don't want to go back. I need some help, Lord. 